Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 106 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And we are still together, yet apart, socially yes. distancing. <laughs> yes. Thankful for technology. Yeah, in our case, we're virtually distancing, but it's so great to see each other's faces, at least through the magic of Skype. Yes, it's really <laughs> lovely. And um, we have so much to talk about. We're going to dive right in. Yeah. So the first thing is we have a big thank you to listener Gail. Thank you, Gail. Gail is our new Patreon sponsor. Yes, it's so exciting to have you join the, I'm using air quotes, club. Thank you so much. <laughs> we really appreciate it. We sure do. It's helped so much, especially once we can be together again going on Biblio adventures. That's right. <laughs> yeah. For sure. And we also want to remind everybody that we have a read-along coming up this month. It's now July. Yes. We're here. Our read-along is The Convenience Store Woman by Sayaka Murata, translated by Ginny Tapley Takamori. And that is available in paperback. It should be readily available. I know I ordered a copy from Bank Square Books. Savoy Bookstore, our affiliate, or we're affiliates with them. And I know some other listeners did as well. Um, they got the in-store copies. So mine is on its way. I can't wait to get it because it's such an adorable cover. It's so cute. I love this book. I was just saying to Chris before we started recording, I can't wait to just be holding it in my hands for a while mm -hmm. as we read it. Yes. And it's fun. It's funny because I went to Savoy in person and tried to buy a copy, and they had they said they had just sold out, and they were ordering more. So. Yes, <laughs> I know. When I first looked, they had two on hand, and then the next time I went to order, they were sold out. So that's great. We appreciate yeah. you all ordering from them because they're two local independent bookstores: one in Connecticut, one in Rhode Island. They're just great stores, and by purchasing through our affiliate link, it helps us a little bit too. Yeah, thank you so much for that. You can start discussing it anytime you like on our Goodreads page. We do have a thread for this read-along. We would just ask that you put, you know, a spoiler in front of any comments that might be spoilerish because a lot of people like us haven't started reading it yet. And then also we will be having another Zoom virtual read-along. Yes, yes. We're going to open it up to anyone who'd like to come and attend. We do ask that you subscribe to our newsletter so that we can send you a secure link for that. The read-along, the virtual read-along discussion will be on Sunday, July 26th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Yeah, we did our first virtual read-along for our last book, Go Went Gone by Jenny Erpenbeck, and it was really fun. We really appreciate all of those who joined in for that, and we hope that we get another exciting group. To, it really made the reading of it so much more robust for me. Absolutely, for me as well. Yes. And then so after that, if you can't attend that virtual discussion, but you want to send us feedback about the book or ask, uh, ask questions that you want us to discuss on the episode, we're happy to do that. Just get your comments to us before July 31st, because that's the day we're going to be recording the episode where we discuss the book on the podcast. Yeah, so three chances, totally. three chances to talk about the book. <laughs> so exciting. <laughs> Can't wait to dive into that one. And then if you want bonus points, if you take a picture of yourself with your book and 
send it to us by email or put it on social media and tag us book cougars we would love to see your shining faces with a copy of your book that would be so much fun we can make a collage yeah that would be great yeah cool So, Chris, what are you currently reading? Well, I'm currently reading a couple books. I picked up All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson. I picked it up for Pride Month, which was in June. George is an African-American man. So I also wanted to pick it up to support the effort of supporting black writers' voices in this time of another huge civil rights movement. probably the biggest civil rights movement in our history and so so far so good it is called a memoir manifesto this is a memoir and about being a queer boy and african-american and growing up and what you know he's gone through to negotiate all of the communities he's a part of and you know assimilate his identity with these different groups so again that's All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson. More on that next time. Yeah, that sounds great. How about you? I'm reading The Museum of Modern Love by Heather Rose. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Chris read this. Gosh, it was probably a couple years ago. I don't know. Maybe two years ago. I'm not sure. Everything seems so long ago these days. But yeah, it was a book I read as part of my participation in the Australian Woman Writers Challenge. That's how I came across it anyway. Yeah, and I'm reading it for my, um, I have a virtual book club that I'm a part of. And it's won all manner of awards in 2017. And, you know, the premise of it is it's about a woman who's um, doing an art exhibit where she literally sits in a chair all day at the museum and people just come and sit across from her and it's told from different points of view Mm -hmm. now I started it as an audio so I'm going to do audio and read it I can tell already that I probably should have started it in the written form and then gone to audio so I really understood the structure of the book Mm -hmm. so I think I'm going to go back to I think I'm on about chapter eight but I'm going to go back to the first chapter and read it and yeah. then kind of start filling in with the audio, but I'm really enjoying it so far. That's so cool. Yeah. There are a lot of voices and I mean, there's not a ton of characters, but they're, it's really good to get a sense of how they're connected and stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, good. The other book I'm, I'm actually listening to, it's an audio book. It's Ellie Wiesel's night, which is a classic in Holocaust literature, as I think a lot of our listeners will know. And it's a book that I have not read. I've wanted to read it for so long. Um, It's part of a trilogy that he wrote, Night, Dawn, and Day, I believe are the three books in the trilogy. And it's read by a man named George Goodall. It's like G-U-I-D-A-L-L. And he has the perfect voice for this story, Um, Night is about Elie Wiesel's experience as a young man in concentration camps during World War II. He is a Jewish man. He has since passed away. George's, the narrator's voice, is just so full of compassion and warmth that it really strikes the right note. And I'll definitely talk about this book more on the next episode. Yeah, that's definitely a classic that I, I highly recommend people get to. I'm reading a book that I put on request before we went into isolation. 
And I put it on request because it was out. It wasn't like, you know, you know, longtime listeners know I am fond of requesting and recommending books months before they have even been released. But this one had been released. I put it on request and then libraries closed. And just this week, I got a phone call from the Guilford Library saying this book is in. That's awesome. And I was so, I mean, I actually did a happy dance. (laughs) It's called Rage Baking, the Transformative Power of Flower fury and women's voices and the two authors slash editors because there's lots of contributors are kathy gunst and katherine alford and what the the premise of this cookbook is that the after the 2016 election these two women who are very renowned in the world of cooking shows and the cookbook world and just the food world in general turned to baking to assuage their feelings of pain and suffering and, you know, just overall grief, I think, for the direction that we were headed. And they decided to create this cookbook, which is also kind of a manifesto. They invited lots of contributors, like Rebecca Traster, for example, um, has an essay in here. So there's recipes, but then interspersed with the recipes are essays written by people talking about their rage and their how they're handling it and the role that food and baking has played for them. I'm really enjoying it. I literally opened the cover when I brought it home and just sat down and started reading it. Now, I do want to say, caveat, there is a little controversy surrounding this book. There is a woman um, by the name of Tangerine Jones who started to bake back in, I think, 2015 under the hashtag Rage Baking, and she has a website, Rage Baking, Mm. and um, she's a black woman who was not invited to contribute to the book. Mm. So that was, you know has been a little bit of a hiccup. I don't really want to um, necessarily take sides. I just think it's important to understand. And I have read quite a bit about it. And I think that, you know, there is a long history of, you know, white privilege in lots of different arenas and the world of food and the food network and places like that is no different. I think changes has been in the air for a while and continues to be taking place. I will say that there is a good complement of contributors that were asked to be in this book. So there are a lot of folks from, you know, black and brown and different cultures that are represented really well in it. And I think there's an opportunity when they do a reprinting of the cookbook I've read that they will ask Tangerine Jones to either submit something to the second printing or part of the proceeds of this book go to Emily's List, which is, you know, the nonprofit that supports getting women into political office Mm -hmm. and that they also on second printing could also ask Tangerine Jones if there are some nonprofits that she would like the proceeds to be used towards. So, yeah. So was there a lawsuit or there's just the online arguments? Yeah, I I have not read anything about a lawsuit. I think it's just been, you know, some of the contributors have spoken up and said, we're very regretful that we have pieces in here. Please pull our piece on the second printer printing. And others have said, I'm really proud of the work I did in this cookbook. And, you know, I'm hopeful that they will, as I mentioned, you know, either have Tangerine Jones submit something 
or use some of the proceeds to benefit something that she supports. So I haven't read anything about lawsuits at all. Just curious. So, okay. Yeah. Again, it's called Rage Baking, the transformative power of flower, fury, and women's voices. All right. So what have you just read? I've done some reading. <laughs> Which is so exciting because I think both of us had been in a little bit of a slump. Yeah, we so, kind of had been, but I think we uh, have, uh, the last two weeks has been a different uh, tale. Yes, for sure. So I finished Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close by Aminatu Sow and Ann Friedman. This is a, a nonfiction book about women's friendship, and it comes out on July 14th. Unless you're a lucky Book of the Month Club subscriber, and then it was one of the um, July Book of the Month Club picks. So they are the hosts of the podcast Call Your Girlfriend. And this book recounts when they first met kind of as younger women in D.C. They were both living there at the time, and they were introduced by a mutual friend. Aminatu is black and Anne is white. So the book really um, delves into issues around race and issues around female friendship and how we keep friends and how also sometimes we go through difficult periods in our friendships, which they did because eventually they both ended up living on opposite coasts from each other mm. and still were doing this podcast, you know, from a distance. Wow. And they found that their friendship was ebbing and flowing and they were having some issues with that. So it's really the first time I can remember reading a book where it talks about the notion that friendship is work, you know, mm -hmm. just like how marriages work, right? And you can read a lot of books about that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I think friendships are work. I mean, they can be. Sometimes they just kind of cruise along, but other times, like, they, they need maintenance. Yeah, and I didn't mean work in a negative sense. I just meant, oh. yeah, you, you need to pay attention to them, you know, and yeah. um, especially the important ones that you have in your life. And so it it really talks about that. They're very funny, and the book is poignant, and really then also takes you through, I think, about a 10-year period of time. So their lives really change because, you know, when you meet in your 20s, there's a lot that's going on in that time period. So I highly recommend it. I didn't look to see what the audio is like, but it could be an interesting one to check out that way. So again, it's Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close. Well, great. Well, I did finish Tuesday Mooney Talks to Ghosts. That was a currently reading book last episode. I finished it. Um, it's by Kate Raculia. It's set in Boston. It's kind of like a little bit of like a gothic caper mystery mm -hmm. and you know what I really enjoyed the story I just felt and this was maybe at the end of my reading slump I got a little frustrated with how like I just kind of felt like come on let's just go let's wrap it up and I do kind of feel like it could have probably done with like 40 50 pages being cut and things tightened up a little bit um, but overall I did enjoy the story I thought it was a unique story about it was this wealthy man who was very extravagant and quirky and into gothic stuff who passes away and set up this big puzzle hunt for people. And, and there was a purpose and there was intention behind it and just a lot of fun diversity. So that, again, was Tuesday Mooney Talks to Ghosts by Kate Raculia. If you're looking for something fun and you don't mind things being drawn out a little bit. Like, I think if I had been more patient 
or not in a reading slump, I, you know, I probably wouldn't have bothered me that it was a bit yeah. on the long side. Yeah, that was like me complaining a couple of weeks ago about all those pages, those books over 400 pages. <laughs> I, th- I think we just start to feel that way because as we're reading a long book, you know, our pile that we pick up from different places just grows and grows, you know. Yes, and some <laughs> books scream louder from the pile than others. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, the other book I read was called The Last Flight by Julie Clark. This was the book I got from Book of the Month Club, and it's a thriller, which I don't read a lot of thrillers, but I really enjoyed it. It was definitely a page turner. And I actually attribute this to getting me out of my slump. Oh, excellent. Yeah, I just spent a weekend with it and loved it. I wanted to read the dedication. It says, dedicated to all the women who have come forward with their stories, whether it be in front of a congressional panel on live television or alone in a windowless human resources office. We hear you. We believe you. One of the threads in the book is about domestic violence, and I think that that dedication is really lovely and really speaks to part of what she was trying to do with the book. Sometimes, you know, someone can find themselves in a situation where the only answer for them is to flee. Mm-hmm. And both this book is told from two different points of view. Claire, who is married to a man who's in, a st- in an established political family, She runs their foundation. They have a very public face that they put out into the world, but he's also an abuser. So behind the scenes, she's not being treated very well. And she makes a plan to try to escape her life. And she works on that plan for a really long time. And then at the last minute, it goes awry. And that's where the other character, Eva, comes into play. She, too, is trying to flee a very different life, from, and they're from opposite coasts. One is California, one, I can't remember now, I think it must be D.C., but I might have that wrong. I'm not going to give any spoilers, but they somehow come into contact with each other, and then the rest of the story takes off, where they're um, trying to make new lives for themselves. And I would say the overarching themes are about redemption, starting over, self-worth, all when you have a history of domestic violence for one woman and then the other woman it has to do with being adopted and growing up in the foster system and um, how that has an impact on the, you know, the privilege and the choices that you have moving forward. So I enjoyed it. Definite page turner. Again, that's The Last Flight by Julie Clark. All right, so I finished listening to what might be one of like my top three audiobooks of all time, and that's My Sister the Serial Killer by Oyinkin Braithwaite. This was so fantastic to listen to as an audiobook. Um, it was read by Adapero Adoye, who is an actor. Oh my gosh, she did a brilliant job narrating, doing all the different characters. I loved it. I mean, the the title is what it says, My Sister the Serial Killer. It's about um, an older sister. There's two sisters in this family. And the younger one is the beautiful one who always gets away with everything. Men flock to her. All they see is her beauty. They just want to be with her. And the older sister, who is always cleaning up the messes, is not the beautiful one. You know, she's the one that, you know, she's reliable she's not the one that men want and so there's a lot of social commentary you know even though this is a 
it's a really good mystery. Um, you you know, in the sense of um, you know, there's the who done it, the why done it, and then I guess the thriller that's more of like the race against time. And so this has more of that kind of race against time because you know things are starting to come to a head. Um, but just a fantastic audiobook. And I listened through our Libro.fm. We're affiliates with them now. So if you are interested in getting an audio subscription, we have a, an offer for you. If you sign up using the code BookCougars, you'll get your first book for free. Yeah. You know, if you've never listened to audiobooks, I would say try it out because it's a really simple platform to use and very easy to navigate on your cell phone. And we'll put that information in our show notes. Yeah. Don't feel like you have to be, you know, furiously writing everything that we say as we go along. Really, literally everything we mention is put in the show notes. Yeah. And if you go and look for that Libro.fm deal in our show notes, Emily has a magic link that she puts in that automatically populates the book Cougars promotional code. It's a great way. And like you had mentioned last month, Emily, um, you get a lot of your audiobooks from the library, but you use Libro.fm for those hot books that you can't, you know, you don't want to wait six months for sometimes at the library. Exactly. And and sometimes there's just an esoteric book, too, that my library is not going to get, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I use it for that as well. And it is, as Chris mentioned, it's a great, really easy to navigate platform. Highly recommend it. And did you only listen to this on audio, Chris, or did you read it as well? I only listened to it on audio. Um, But the funny thing is, yesterday was my sister's birthday. And when you and I ran into each other at the post office late last week, yeah. I was mailing the book to my sister. That's what I got her for her birthday. <laughs> I thought, what a perfect gift to give one sister. A book called yeah. My Sister, the Serial Killer. So <laughs> the family got a big kick out of that. But no, I, I'm curious how it does read. Mm-hmm. Um, Oyakon Braithwaite is a Nigerian writer, and it is set in Nigeria, and, you know, one of the things, I think we've mentioned this before with some audiobooks, when they're from another country and you don't speak the language, it's really fun to listen to an audiobook because you get the correct pronunciations of names and places that yeah. as a person who only reads English or doesn't read the original language that it's translated from, you stumble over and really don't know. So I feel like it adds a richness to yeah. the, the listening experience for sure. There's not a lot of direct violence in the book, but there is bloody cleanup. <laughs> One would think if there's a serial killer involved, that kind of makes sense. Yes. <laughs> no matter how good looking she is, she's still a right. serial killer. <laughs> well, talking about violence and blood and etc., the other book I finished was called Last Day by Luann Rice. Luann Rice is a very prolific writer. She's written some upwards of 30 books. And she lives in our area. She lives in Old Lyme-ish area, I think. This book is a departure. This book is quite bloody. It's a kind of a police procedural book. I talked about it on a previous episode saying I wasn't sure I was going to be able to get through it because the opening chapter is about a pregnant woman who is murdered and there's underwear you know like wrapped around her neck and I just wasn't sure I could do it at all and then one of our friends Deb 
piped in after that episode and said, oh, Emily, if you can get back to it, it's really good. So I did. That was all of the um, enthusiasm I needed to get back into it. And also, I have to say, my pregnant cousin had her baby. So I wasn't thinking about like how awful that would be and picturing it a little too much. Yes. I do have to say I had a good laugh as I was reading it one morning in the TMI category. I often read very early in bed and the gentleman caller happened to be visiting. So he was sleeping what I thought was very soundly next to me. And then it seemed like he woke up. So I said to I read to him the start of chapter five said the state police helicopter landed at the Martha's Vineyard Airport. And Jim and I have such an affinity for Martha's Vineyard that I read that out loud to him. And in his very sleepy state, he said, see, babe, you're not even thinking about the underwear around her neck anymore. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was the one trying to you know, get me to forge ahead. He was like, oh, you'll forget about that, you know, gruesome scene. <laughs> so I did forge ahead. I really enjoyed it. It's really about, you know, them trying to solve the mystery of what happened and who killed her. And, you know, as often is the case, most people assume, and I think for good reason, I think statistically, it's usually the spouse that kills the partner, right? Mm -hmm. So the lion's share of the story is about that. And I'm not going to give any spoilers. (laughs) I'm just going to say, I couldn't figure out who did it. So. Um, But she also, one of the things, and I, you know, I definitely appreciated this. It's very Connecticut-centric. It's very sailing. She uses lots of sailing terms. Places around where we live, including the Audubon shop in Madison, you know. (laughs) So places that we would be familiar with. So that added a layer of pleasure. That's so cool. Yeah. That's great. And so, and if listeners, if this is your first time, we are coming to you from Guilford, Connecticut, which is right on the Connecticut shoreline. Right. So it's rich with, you know, we have tons of water, tons of sailboats, lots of wildlife, which yeah. she is obviously a fan of wildlife. So oh, very cool. yeah, so I enjoyed it. Again, that was called Last Day by Luann Rice. Well, the third book I read is Home Before Dark by Riley Sager. And this was the book that Book of the Month Club sent me. I loved it. It's mystery, horror. Uh, It's Haunted House. Really a good read. I hadn't read anything by him. And this is his fourth book. And of course, now since I've read something by him, I'm noticing his name popping up a lot more in social media as somebody who writes really solid, entertaining novels. Um, this one is about, you know, for those of you who are fans of the Amityville Horror, which was so hugely popular in the late 70s, I was a big fan. Um, this book is kind of, I wouldn't call it necessarily a love letter, but it, if you know anything about the Amityville Horror and some of the criticisms of that novel and investigations into what really happened, this book, Home Before Dark, will make you happy. Like I was mm. joyfully reading this because <laughs> what happens is, um, so the protagonist was five years old when her parents moved into this mansion, this old mansion in small town Vermont. And they only stay for 20 days before they flee. The family before them had also fled and left all their belongings behind. It has a history of things happening in this house 
it's one of those places where the local teens dare each other to get close to it, you know, because it's supposedly haunted. So the protagonist, Maggie's her name. She is now an adult woman. Her dad wrote this tell-all story about their experience. And it's a huge bestseller, international bestseller. A lot, everyone knows Maggie because of that book, because she's kind of the center of that book. And she can't shake it, you know. It's kind of haunted her her whole life, this book, which she thinks is a bunch of lies. Um, her dad dies. She decides to go and figure out what really happened at the house. She wants to find out why did her dad lie. She owns a business with a friend. She's a designer, so they flip houses and remodel houses. So she's thinking she's going to go to the home and remodel it or just do a light renovation and then flip it and sell it. A lot of other things happen along the way, and I will say no more. Other than the novel, as uh, Riley Sager wrote it, is it's one chapter from the dad's book and then one chapter from Maggie's current experience. And so you get his book with her book, and he does a great job of putting stuff in your head that you think that turns out to be a red herring, you know? And other oh. things, other things just like went right over my head, you know? And until later, <laughs> it's just like, oh man. Um, so I really, really enjoyed it. And I'm definitely going to seek out more books by uh, him. It's Home Before Dark, Riley Sager. And I think I saw on social media that he just signed some sort of a book deal for three more books yes, or something. So yes. you're going to be seeing more from him. So that's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. Well, the other book I read is called The Revisioners by Margaret Wilkerson Sexton. This is one that I picked up when you and I got to go on a jaunt to the library together. I feel kind of really super late to the party on this one. I mean, it did come out last year. Um, but I guess it was still in their new release table, so mm -hmm. I shouldn't feel so late to the party. But this was our buddy Russell from Ink and Paper Blog's book of the year last year. And he reads a lot, so that's saying a lot. And I can see why. I loved it. It takes place from two points of view. Ava, who's in current day, 2017, and then Josephine. And Josephine's thread is in both 1855 and 1924. Oh, interesting. And she is Ava's... Let's see if I can get this right, because I kept having to reread it. I think she is her great-grandmother's great-grandmother. Not that that really matters that much. In other words, you know, it's... Like, she's her great-grandmother's granddaughter? Wait, you no, just lost me. <laughs> Josephine is Ava's great-grandmother's great-grandmother. Okay. So it's, I think the point of that is it's like four generations okay. ago. I could have that wrong. It might have been three. I kept trying to read that over and over, and then I was like, you know, Emily... That's a detail that really doesn't matter. <laughs> but anyway, in current day, Ava has got kind of is a little bit down on her luck. And she has a son named King. And she decides to move in with her grandmother, Martha. And Martha is white. And Martha is Ava's father's mother. So it's her paternal grandmother. And her paternal grandmother still holds a little bit of racist beliefs. And so Ava moves in because she's suffering from dementia. And in theory, the idea is that she's going to help her in her, her service. Her grandmother will 
both pay her and also provide room and board. So it's giving Ava a little chance to get back on her feet. Okay. So that's kind of the thread of the current day. Josephine's character chapters go into two different time periods. In 1855, she's an enslaved child. And then in 1924, she actually owns a piece of land that she and her husband have worked for a while, for tended for quite some time. Her husband has passed away and she's now living there. And there are, I'm not going to get into the weeds of too many characters, but there are characters that take place in those years mm-hmm. and then characters that are also in Ava's years. And the main point to understand is that Ava is a descendant of Josephine. And that's made clear at the very opening sentence of the book is about her leaving her current apartment to go live in with her grandmother. And she takes the picture of Josephine with her that she owns. So it's obvious that Josephine has held a very important uh, place in her family lineage. And in the the chapters with Josephine, there is a thread with the KKK A woman moves in next door to Josephine, who's white and kind of likes to come visit and have jam and biscuits. But then turns out she's also going to the female version of the KKK meetings. Mm. So it's it really is. And then I should say, and then in current time, Ava is wrestling with this notion of her own grandmother, who she's living with, who has is not necessarily treating her as well as she should in a in the area of race. Mm -hmm. I guess that's the best way to say it. And Ava's mother works with young girls who are giving birth. She's a doula. And she's kind of trying to coach Ava like this relationship with your grandmother might not be so great. You know, don't forget about yourself. And at the same time, there's a thread where Ava's son by making this move, she's put him in a in a school where he is one of very few black boys that are attending the school. So I'm kind of rambling, but basically what Margaret Wilkerson Sexton is doing with this book is really having you look at race from many different vantage points and across different periods of time. Mm-hmm. She weaves the chapters. It just She does such a great job of weaving the chapters together. I'm a little confounded by the fact that this book doesn't appear on more reading lists of what people should be reading these days. I think it would be a great book to read. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the other themes, and this is something that a lot of people face, is how far you'll go to get your life back on track, especially when you're a single mother. And I know that a part of what the conversation is in the Black Lives Movement right now is about, because of the history of our country, many people haven't had the opportunity to get a good, solid start in life. Mm -hmm. You know, and that really is the basis of privilege, in my opinion. You know, if you have family wealth that you can count on, you are in a different station in life. And so that is something she addresses in this book. I highly recommend it. The Revisioners by Margaret Wilkerson Sexton. Okay, well, the last book I read is also a book that deals with race in America in a, in a lot of ways. It's not the central theme, but it's it's throughout This book is coming out July 14th, and it's called Blacktop Wasteland by S.A. Cosby. I heard some people talking about it on, I heard, I saw some people talking about it on Twitter, um, some mystery writers and stuff. I was like, I'm going to check that out. I was able to get an advanced copy, and this is about a man named Beauregard, 
He's an African-American man. Bug is his nickname. He comes from a legacy of violence. His father was um, in the in the life, as they say, living a criminal life and left the family. And um, Bug is struggling not to be his father. He's trying to resist things. He was in juvie for a while and he was in the life for a while, but he's married. He has a much older daughter who doesn't live with his immediate nuclear family now, who he had with a white woman. And his ex, well, not mother-in-law, I don't think they were married, but his daughter's grandmother is a white racist. So he can never support his daughter because they reject his offers. But he has two sons with his wife. And so he's trying to do the right thing. He owns his own mechanic shop. He's trying not to, you know, he's trying to do the right thing. But the recession happens. Another garage opens up in town that pulls a lot of his business and gets a state contract for handling state vehicles. One kid needs glasses. The other kid needs, uh, what do you call it? Orthodontia. Yeah, you know, and so he's behind. His mom's in a nursing home. She owes $48,000. Like, so he's really up against the wall and decides to take a job. Mm. He's known as a wheel man, which is the guy who drives the getaway car. And like, he has this reputation of being like the best wheel man on the East Coast. It's set in Virginia. Um, and like, his name is renowned from like DC to Florida, you know? So he does uh, get embroiled in something. So this story, it's very, there's a lot of violence and a lot of um, racial stuff because some of the people he interacts with are white, some are black. There's some homophobia going on and it's just a little bit of everything, this novel. But I think what makes it really stand out, it's in the Southern noir tradition and it's rural, you know, it's Mm. in rural Virginia and some scenes in North Carolina. So it's very different than a lot of books with an African-American male protagonist who is in the life. You know, so many of those are urban. So this was yeah. a very different novel. So he's a wheelman in one of the getaways. That he, that's the way it's described, the driving. Cosby, the author, I don't know if he drives himself like this. Uh, I mean, it's crazy, the scene, but it as somebody who's not really into getaway or cop chases or anything like that, I thought it was pretty cool. <laughs> See, I love cars and I love driving. Yeah. And I like, you know, a fantasy of being able to drive a car really fast. Oh, so well, you that, know what, that's Emily? That's like a scene I should read. <laughs> yeah, you should totally get your hands on Blacktop Wasteland. And I won't say much more about the plot at all because I don't want to give anything away, but... Some of the lines that he has are so good. So let me just read a couple of them. He likes to play dumb, but he is slick as two eels in a bucket full of snot. <laughs> wow. That's, that's one. You can totally picture that. Right. And here's another one. Pockets of rust covered the hood like some oxidizing eczema. Wow. Oh, great. And then let me just read one more. He's so crooked, they're going to have to screw him into the ground when he dies. <laughs> So he has a lot of great lines. A couple of them were kind of clunky and didn't quite make it for me. But I I highlighted so many of these. I just thought the writing is delightful. And I really like the character of Bug. I wouldn't mind reading more. 
with him. Really fantastic novel about a guy trying to do the right thing. And again, that's Blacktop Wasteland by S.A. Cosby. It's out July 14th from Flatiron Books. Very cool. That sounds great. I've never heard of it. So Biblio Adventures. Well, we ran into each other. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we weren't. We didn't intend to. And ironically, it was at the post office, but we were both doing bu- bookish things. There's yes, a shock. Right. Know, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were both mailing books. Yes. <laughs> I went on one Biblio adventure, a virtual one. I saw Richie Jackson, who's the author of Gay Like Me, in conversation with Matthew Reimer and Lighton Brown, who are the authors of We're Everywhere, Protest Power and Pride in the History of Queer Liberation. Um, and this was an event through RJ Julia. And it was a really, really interesting conversation between these three guys. They talk a lot about the importance, obviously, of what Pride is. You know, Pride Month, which was the month of June. You know, now it's become the celebratory thing and the the Pride, their parades now. And as Richie Jackson points out, you know, they used to be protest marches to raise awareness. And he feels like they need to get back to that. Um, Because one of the points that was driven home is that, you know, we may be legal, but we're not safe. So there's still a lot of work to do. And obviously, with the Trump administration going so hard and heavy towards trying to take away the rights of trans people, it's definitely something to come together about. And they, they talk, too, about how within the gay community, LGBTQ community, there's been a lot of division and a lot of fear of differences and you know the importance of coming together and being together and you know it's kind of like in the feminist movement you know white feminists were racist towards other women and discriminatory against lesbians and so i think you the organization can finally see that they're not helping a cause when they're drawing lines between their own people Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was a really good conversation and I look forward to checking out their books. How about you? I also attended a virtual event through Books Are Magic, which is a bookstore in Brooklyn that I have gotten to visit and never gone for an event. So it was cool to do an event with them. It was a conversation between the author Curtis Sittenfeld, whose most recent book is Rodham, and then Courtney Sullivan, um, and it was the publishing day for her book, Friends and Strangers, which is a book I think I talked about, I think on the last episode, maybe it was the one before that. One thing that I thought was really nice is, you know, it's a little bit awkward to be hosting events right now with um, the civil rights movement going on. And I've noticed that different people are handling acknowledgement in various ways. And what they chose to do before it started, you know, the gentleman that worked for the bookstore just um, talked about an organization that's supporting black trans people right now. And it's called the Okra Project. And so I thought that was really nice because it led me to when the event was over, you know, look it up and see what it was and get a little bit of education, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so I thought, I just wanted to point that out that I thought that was a really nice way to handle that. So this was just two, you know, authors in conversation with each other. I'd never seen uh, Curtis Sittenfeld. I've heard of her, you know, and actually I don't think I've ever seen um, 
Courtney Sullivan talk either. So it was fun to see them in conversation together. One of the things that I thought was funny is that um, Courtney Sullivan talked about how at an early, one of her earliest book events, because I think this is her fifth book, her husband was at the event and he said, you know, I've noticed that when women talk about their book, they talk about plot. And when men talk about their books, they tend to talk about broad brushstrokes of the themes of the book, you know? So she said she's always thought about that ever since. And so whenever she's particularly, you know, talking about one of her new books, she tries to really think about that. So she talked a little bit about the plot. She talked about the themes. So I thought she did a good job of melding the two. And this was a book, I don't know if listeners remember, I talked about, it's um, about a, a young family, they're in their 30s who have a new baby, and they hire on a nanny who's at the local college, who's in her early 20s, mm. and just about their relationship and how it develops. It really de- deals with some big themes about friendship and privilege. And one of the things that she, the author pointed out is that it also deals with the idea of, do we listen to our friends? You know, are we giving them advice that they want or are we kind of trying to insert ourselves into their lives and and how do you find the balance there you know Mm -hmm. so I thought that was interesting and there also is a thread in the book about the economy the her father-in-law in in the book is was a business owner whose business went under when uber came into play because he had like a limousine service Mm -hmm. and so he talks a lot about the economy in the book. And I forgot about that thread. And she also said that she was a babysitter in college. She went to Smith. So there is some autobiographical notes to it. But she also read the Babysitter's Club when she was a kid. And she said it had a huge impact on her desire to be a babysitter, you know, so I thought that was really funny. So so it was a good it was a good event. I really enjoyed it. And it's also giving me the opportunity to remind everyone that that book Friends and Strangers is out and available now. And then I also was supposed to attend an event with Tyari Jones and Ann Patchett Mm. that I was so excited about. And it was through the Women's Prize website. And then when I went to log in, I realized I got the time wrong because they're in London. (laughs) (laughs) So I totally blew it. But what I did instead is they actually have a, a podcast the Women's Prize podcast, and I highly recommend you go listen. The most recent is an interview with the all of the authors who are currently shortlisted for the prize. And it was a really great set of interviews. So I'll put that link in the show notes. And if you're looking for, I want to say it was an hour long podcast. I really enjoyed it. And it didn't quite make up for not getting to hear Tayari Jones and Ann Patchett, but I got to hear a lot of other really great authors. That's cool. Yeah. So how about upcoming Biblio adventures? Is there anything on the books for you? I only have one, which is one that's kind of a self-guided adventure, which is I have a lot of books I want to donate right now. And I know people are a little squeamish about that. But I do want to try to get them into the hands of readers. And there's a an organization called Help Your Shelves in New Haven that put up a bunch of little libraries. They're not in the little free library system, but I'm going to try to scout some of those out over the holiday weekend and see if I can, if they're not filled, you know, yeah. put some of in them, sprinkle them around town. That's great. What, what about you? 
You know what? There is one that I'm really interested in. It's Wednesday, July 15th. It's at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time through the Center for Fiction. It is a conversation with Victor Lavelle is going to be in conversation with Stephen Graham Jones. Jones has a new book out called The Only Good Indians, which is, as I'll just, it says it's a blend of classic horror and a dramatic narrative with sharp social commentary. The novel follows four American Indian men after a disturbing event from their youth puts them in a desperate struggle for their lives. Tracked by an entity bent on revenge, these childhood friends are, are helpless as the culture and traditions they left behind catch up to them in a violent, vengeful way. Yeah, so um, <laughs> it sounds like a really intense book. And the blurb on the cover of the book, there's two blurbs, actually, one by Peter Tremblay, who he calls it a masterpiece, and Paul is a big horror writer, well-respected horror writer, and then a, bl a blurb by Tommy Orange, who says, more than I could have asked for in a novel. Wow. Yeah, so sounds good to me. Very cool. That sounds yeah. nice. What about upcoming reads? Well... Oh, so many, Emily. There are so Me many. Me too. Oh my I gosh. I have so many. Yeah, I don't know where my where I'll land. I really don't know. I'm looking around at my desk and there's so many books I want to read. Do you know which one you're going to pick up next? I have a list. Do you want to hear it? I do. <laughs> well, one of our followers on Twitter, Sonia, alerted us after we talked about Harriet Lerner last week. That Harriet Lerner's son is Ben Lerner. Yes. I had no idea. So, of course, I ran, well, <laughs> ran to my computer and got online and <laughs> looked up the Topeka School by Ben Lerner, which has been on my radar for a while. And I put it on request and got it. That's so, awesome. The cover yeah. is so cool. I remember seeing the cover and thinking when I first learned about it that, oh, that looks really good. And I had no idea, though, who yeah. he was. Yeah, so I guess he, I mean, I read the acknowledgments and he acknowledges his mother, but I guess she's kind of the, what's the right way to say it? She's the inspiration for maybe the, the character of the mother in this book. So, yeah. So again, that's called The Topeka School by Ben Lerner. And then I want to start um, Share Me and Major Whittlesey by Kathleen Rooney. Yes. That's out August 11th, and we're going to be talking with her coming up, so I really want to get that book into my queue. For sure. And, and this, and that comes out, did I say August 11th? And then With or Without You by Carolyn Levitt comes out August 4th, and we're going to be having a chat with her as well. Mm -hmm. So that's on my radar. I have so many books. I know. It's amazing, isn't it? And then the audiobook I'm interested in it has such an interesting name. It's called The Quarry Fox and Other Critters of the Wild Catskills. Oh, interesting. And, yeah, and it just came out in June. And I'm just going to read you this little bit. It says it chronicles the seasons and the vibrant wildlife of a landscape she cherishes, hmm. offering keen insights in an engaging narrative that celebrates the splendor of the natural world. And people are comparing it to, like, John Muir's My First Summer in the Sierra and Thoreau's Autumnal Tints. So I'm looking forward to that again. That's called The Quarry Fox 
and that's an audio that I'm really looking forward to. What do we say? Dipping Listen, into? Listening to? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Getting into your ears. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. I have a book club book coming up for July. It's a Hilary Mantel novel um, called Flood. F-L-U-D-D. Mm. And I don't remember the details about it. I ordered it right away. Because I just feel like... I love to read some books on my e-reader, but sometimes for a book club book or a book I'm going to be discussing, I like to have the physical copy so I can do the sticky note thing and, you know, refresh my memory if I read it a couple weeks before we have the discussion. I agree. And then sometimes it's like there's a turn of phrase when you're listening to an audiobook that you just can't quite grab, you know, but when you're reading it, you can. So yeah. I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm happy I, or excited, I should say. I've, I haven't read anything by Hilary Mantel yet. You know, she's the one who's done that big trilogy now, the historical fiction, and I'm not up for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but <laughs> one of the folks in my group really enjoyed this one a couple of years ago. So that's what we're choosing. Short books. Because that's our attention span lately. Yeah. <laughs> or it had been anyway. Cool. Coming up next, we have an interview with author Anne Oman. Right. Anne's book is called Mango Rains. And, you know, Anne, she's been a writer of nonfiction and also a journalist. She's written some travel books about bike riding. Mm -hmm. But this is her first novel. Yes. And it's based and she, in part, I mean, she worked um, as a... In the Foreign Service. The Foreign Service. She worked in Cambodia. Okay. So Anne actually worked in the Foreign Service in, in Southeast Asia. And so this novel is kind of set there. I, I started the first couple of paragraphs. And just from what little bit I did read, I think she brings her experience of being in that environment to life. Yeah, and really understanding the landscape of those areas that she's, yeah. you know, exploring in the book. The landscape, literal, and then the political landscape, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. And two things to note. One, um, this book did come out in February and is available for purchase now. And we'll put the ways that you can purchase it in the show notes. Um, I don't think we actually got into the details of that when we were talking to Anne, but mm -hmm. we do want you to go buy it. And then the other thing is, Anne is 79. So she's also, we kind of feel like she's a hero. Right? She's you know? a good role model for us middle-aged girls who are still doing things and excited about projects and, and right. living life. You know, I mean, you know, there are a lot of people who retire and that's it. Right. And I think it's great to see somebody who's a generation ahead of us who's still out there pursuing her passions. Yeah, really cool. So, and um, the book's gotten some good reviews. It's actually, we keep saying it's a book. It is a novella. I don't know if that's important to people or not, but that is mm -hmm. one thing we talked to her about. So enjoy our interview with her. We really um, had a good time yeah. learning more about Anne and her book. Hi, everyone. We are the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And we are so excited to have here with us today Anne Oman, who is a journalist by trade and has appeared in such publications as the Washington Post, the Baltimore Sun, the Washington Times. 
She's written a couple travel books about biking tours. And she's here today also to talk about her fiction debut, which is the novella Mango Rains. Hi, Anne. Hi. How are you, Emily? So good and so happy to have you here with us today. Would you be so willing as to give us a brief synopsis about what the novella is about? Mango Rains is a story about um, expatriates, mainly Americans, in Southeast Asia during the 1960s, the early 1960s. It's told in the voice of a young Foreign Service officer named Julia, who arrives in Phnom Penh, um, the capital of Cambodia, in 1963. She's um, 22, a total novice, has never been to Asia before, and it's the season of the mango rains. The mango rains are brief showers that come before the monsoon season. And it, it's about the people she meets. Um, she falls in love. She falls out of love. She falls in love again. And the backdrop is a lot of the important things that were happening at the time. There was a war next door in Vietnam. Buddhist bonzes were immolating themselves. It, eventually, there was a coup that toppled the uh, American puppet regime, um, with, with our connivance, actually. And then John F. Kennedy was assassinated about three weeks later. This precipitated a diplomatic crisis, and most of the um, the characters, most of the Americans anyway, had to leave Cambodia. And the second half of it follows them to various places uh, around the world, including Vietnam, Indonesia, India, Africa, and the U.S. That's probably more than you wanted to know. (laughs) No, that's great, Anne. Thank you so much for that. So why did you decide to to jump into fiction after having this successful nonfiction career? What propelled you? Fish got to swim and writers got to write. And I think just about every reporter, uh, you know, is probably either writing a book or thinking about writing a book. And it was always on my to-do list. Um, and I, you know, <laughs> don't have a lot of time. I have three children. I had I was working. I was doing a whole lot of other things. And, and you need to kind of have some tranquility to write a novel, I think, and really be able to think about it. So... I basically waited till I was retired. And, and then I, I had some notes. I had lots of ideas. I, Unlike the um, heroine of the story, I did not keep a journal, which I certainly regret. But I wrote little notes, some of which I could actually find. And I had lots of souvenirs. Um, so I sat down and started writing. And, and of course, the hardest thing about, about a novel is um, getting it published mm-hmm. <laughs> and that took forever. So but I finally found a small publisher who was interested in novellas. This is on the long side for a novella. It, it's about 51,000 words. Uh, I think a novel is supposed to be 60,000 words. On a novella can be anything, you know, even 20,000 words. So I finally found a small publisher, Galaxy Galloper Press, which is um, trying to revive the novella as a literary form. And um they published it. Um, it. It came out uh, in mid-February. And then, of course, there was the pandemic, and a lot of the plans for publicizing it were um, put on hold. But I finally found Laura Rossi, um, a publicist who's doing a wonderful job and, and knows people like you. <laughs> That's yeah. great. Uh, that she put us in touch with you. Yeah, because I started reading it uh, just this morning, 
And it's so engaging. It swept me right in. And yeah, I wanted to um, ask you, you were in the Foreign Service yourself. I was, um, and I was posted to Phnom Penh in um, 1963 and had a wonderful time there. I, I am not any of the characters in the book, but a lot of that is based on my experiences and on people I knew, but they're not whole people. They're kind of composites and, and they're mainly fiction with some um, reference to real life. And what was it like to be in the Foreign Service? Chris and I are dying to know. <laughs> it was great, but I, you know, I, I think my experience is really old. You'd have to, uh, to know what it's like to be in the Foreign Service now. Um, you have to talk to somebody a lot younger. I thought it was a great opportunity because, you know, if you graduated from college in 1962, as I did as a, as a history major, there were not a lot of fields open to you, and, and uh, for a woman especially, you could be a secretary, you could be a nurse, or you could be a teacher, uh, none of which appealed to me. And I, I did have the travel bug. And um, so in my senior year of college, I took the Foreign Service exam and, and passed and went for an interview and took the oral exam. And of course, there was lots of security uh, background checks every place I had ever lived. I mean, they talked to my next door neighbor and um, teachers and all sorts of things. And, and finally, I did get an appointment and started um, a very long training course. When I found out where I was going, um, I didn't really know much about it, but I, I learned fairly quickly and um, uh, took a course on Southeast Asia area studies. I had passed the French test, and that was considered adequate for Cambodia because the um, the elite, maybe the top 15% of the people spoke French. So I took some Cambodian on my own. I made friends with some Cambodian guys who were, were teaching it. And even though I wasn't uh, enrolled as a student, I, I did learn a little bit. And um, off I went. You know, it was, um, it was my first job, really, uh, other than summer jobs. And um, so I had nothing to compare it with. Mm -hmm. But um, I was sort of thrown in. I, I got there and I was supposed to be in training. And they said, well, you know, the press officer doesn't really like doing publications. So you, you are now the publications officer. Well, okay, so <laughs> knowing very little about it, I put out a magazine, um, put out a lot of special publications. Like when, when Kennedy died, uh, we had to put out something to show that, you know, this was not like a coup d'etat. You know, if you're in an underdeveloped country, if if someone's assassinated, we think, well, that's a coup. Well, it wasn't a coup, and we had to kind of make that clear. So I had a I had a great time, and but um, I was expelled from the country, not for not for personal reasons, for political reasons, because um, and and that's sort of gone into in the book. But the head of state of Cambodia was uh, exploded at the Americans. You know, this was the Cold War. Mm -hmm. And if you weren't for us, you were against us. And um, the Cambodians didn't like that idea. They wanted to be neutral. We didn't like that. So in any case, I, I left Cambodia and went to Indonesia, which was another underdeveloped Asian country, but also fascinating, um, great people. And I worked there for about a year and a half. And then the same thing happened. Mm -hmm. We had a diplomatic rupture. And um, I worked for an agency which is now extinct called USIA, U.S. Information Agency. So we were 
kind of suspect for some reason. People thought we were spies, what well, we weren't. Information in various languages doesn't mean what it means to us. And, and we were usually the first to go. We were not essential to any country. I mean, you know, if, if they weren't getting our price releases, they didn't really care. So I was thrown out of Indonesia. <laughs> so um, that was sort of a record, uh, two countries, <laughs> three years. <laughs> so that, in part, it sounds like it really launched your writing. Um, well, I did, um, I did write, I, I put out a magazine, I did some brochures, but, you know, I wasn't really a writer. Um, I came back, uh, when I, when I left the Foreign Service, I got a job with Scholastic magazines in New York. And that's where I think I really kind of learned to write because we had to turn out two magazines a week. Mm. And um, it, was, it was heavy writing experience. And um, uh, a lot of my colleagues were just out of Columbia School of Journalism. And they taught me some things like in those days, cut and paste meant, you know, you took scissors and you took paste. <laughs> so, and then when I started freelancing after that, I, I well, Long after that, I started working for the children's magazine at National Geographic, which was also a great experience because at first we were putting out a weekly magazine. Mm-hmm. And when I started freelancing for the Post, I learned to write news stories, which is totally different. So, and, you know, I've written so many things. I've written a chapter of the Time Life book on um, heating and cooling, for instance. Yeah. So <laughs> kind of learned to write whatever you have to write but I never really had a chance to write fiction Mm -hmm. and so you know I I, it's great because I was writing something I wanted to write not something else wanted me to write so I have had a great time with it yeah what was it like for you to write fiction for yourself in that way was it immensely freeing were there frustrations what was it like to dive in I think it was mentally freeing. You know, I mean, when you're a reporter, you have to worry that someone's going to call you and, and scream at you because you spell their name wrong or you misquoted them. <laughs> I could say anything I want. I could make these characters do or say anything I wanted. So it was it was rather freeing. I had I think if you don't have a compelling idea for a novel or a fiction, you'd be crazy to write it. But I did have an idea. I had these things in my head. So I, I just, and I had no deadline. So I, nobody was waiting for this. So I just could feel pretty free. And I, I rewrote it several times. I mean, first I wrote it in the first person. Well, I found that very limiting. So I rewrote it in the third person so I could make the other characters um, have a voice too. Mm. You know, it's funny that you mentioned time because that was one of the questions I was going to ask you because writing fiction for pleasure must be so much different than the deadline-driven background you have of magazine writing and, you know, newspaper writing. So did you find that you had to kind of um, do that with yourself, you know, set deadlines for yourself? Or did you just have this notion that this was just purely for pleasure now that you're retired and you would write? at your will and have the novella finished when you felt like it was done? Well, um, I, you know, I think that being a journalist and especially being a freelancer, you're very disciplined. I mean, you, you can't, you don't have writer's block. I mean, that's forget that. So <laughs> I, I think I had the, the work ethic that, that I was going to be able to do this. So I, uh, I think, you know, that's a great background to have if you're, if you're going to write anything. And 
you know, obviously I, I did other things. I didn't write full time, but I, um, I, I wanted to do it. So I, I pretty much sat down and did it. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. But, I mean, that, you make it sound so simple, but I think for a lot of people that doesn't sound so simple. Well, no, I, I don't think it's simple. I think you really have to uh, be motivated. You have to have an idea that you want to, you know, you have to have something to say. And uh, but I had great fun with it because I, you know, I didn't really know what was going to happen to all the characters and I had fun kind of playing with them and seeing what, what I could do with them. And, and I would get ideas and see if they worked and throw them out if they didn't. That's great. That's fantastic. I, and you know, uh, in the press release, it does say that this book is published in your 80th year. So uh, yes, I'm, about a month away from my 80th birthday, which is going to be sort of a drag this year. I was going to take the family to a lodge in the Adirondacks, which decided to close for the season. Yeah, so that is a bummer. I, I'm just putting it off. I'm going to nine for another year. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we are, you know, the, our tagline is two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. And we really celebrate being middle-aged and, we just want to thank you for being a role model, uh, somebody who is retired and is still pursuing work that she's passionate about. Well, I just wish I were middle-aged. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> well, we're very flexible with age. Yeah. <laughs> good. good. We bring you into the fold happily. <laughs> Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. Um, one more question, if if we may. We wanted to ask you a little bit about the novella as a form, you know, versus the short story or the full novel. When you were shopping your novella around, did you have that label on it? Or was that something that was put on it after it was accepted for publication? Well, I, several years ago, I think it was actually 2007, uh, the first half of it, I wrote the first half of it first, and I entered a contest which was run by the um, Miami University of Ohio for a novella, hmm. and I, I didn't win, I think I was the second runner-up or something like that, so I was interested in, in the novella, but then I thought, well, most people aren't interested in publishing novellas. So uh, that's when I wrote the second half. I thought, well, okay, what else can I, uh, can I say? I didn't want to add more to the, um, to the core story, which is at the, um, which was the Cambodia experience. So I said, well, okay, these characters are all going to different places and I'm going to follow them and, and see what they do. But it still wasn't long enough for a real novel. But so it's a novella. <laughs> I don't, you know, I'm I'm not a literary scholar, so I can't really tell you, you know, what makes a novella and, and what doesn't. And basically, I think one definition is just a short novel. Mm -hmm. uh, there are other definitions, like it has to take place in a certain time frame. But I, I've found novellas don't always live up to that. Uh, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness is considered a novella. Well, it... it it's not in a short time frame, and it starts in England and ends in the Congo. And uh, Henry James's Daisy Miller, I think, starts in Geneva and ends up in Italy. So it, I don't know what the rules are for a novella. So I, I have to beg off on that. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh no, that's okay. I'm just curious about that because it is. You're the first writer we've had on of of a piece of fiction that's been labeled a novella. So 
I think it's great that your publisher is, you know, trying to revive this literary, I guess, length. I think maybe the length is the easiest uh, definition. I'm, I'm surprised that novellas aren't more popular because, you know, everything's gotten shorter. I mean, we're such a, you know, an internet society and sound bites and all that. So I, I'm surprised the novella is not more popular, mm. but maybe it will be. Yeah, maybe we're on to something here. Yeah, I mean, sadly, what I've heard from some in the publishing industry that is some of it has to do with the price point, mm. you know, that it's hard for them to figure out what to price it at. So you've seen some short story collections of late that have novellas within them, you know, so the first um, short story quote in the in the collection is a longer novella length. But, you know, I, I don't really know either. I'm no expert in any of it. But I do think that it's nice for somebody to just write something and decide when they think the story's finished instead of trying to, you know, have it fit into certain guidelines about what's a novella and that sort of thing. Well, my, my wonderful publisher, um, Lauren Haynes, we toyed with the idea of making it a novella and related stories because uh, the first half, uh, part one, is really kind of the, the core novella and then, and, and then the rest are really related stories and um her reasoning was that people might not think they had to read the whole thing because it does well it, it starts with some rain some mango rains it ends in a, a, a dreary rainstorm in paris so you know it, it kind of is sort of a whole but you you could take it as a novella and stories i guess and there are a lot of now coming out novels and stories they call it and I think I once tried to market it like that and it didn't succeed <laughs> well what, we're what, very glad that you got it published and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today we're really looking forward to sharing mango rains with our listeners okay well thank you so much Chris and Emily I really enjoyed it thank you thank you take care thanks for listening to the book cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media or on our Goodreads group. And if you'd like to contact us directly, email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Ring!